0: All right, good morning, ladies, and good morning, or hello to those who are listening in the podcast land. Um, We are in Philippians again this week, and I have a question for you. What motivates you in life? What gives you a sense of purpose? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Is it your job? Is it your kids? Is it appointments or hobbies? Maybe it's just routine. You know you have to get up. Maybe you lost your sense of purpose, and maybe it's hard to get out of bed. In our section, we will see what gives Paul purpose in his life and what motivates him in a dark situation and how he can respond in love and joy. But first, let's turn to prayer. God, I pray that you would, um, in your mercy, just reveal yourself to us through this text. I pray that you would use my, um, my feeble efforts to... Um, allow these sisters to um, give you glory and praise. I pray that it would encourage them. I pray that the word would um, cause them to grow um, more in love with you and um, and who you are and, and, um, and how you have sent your son to um, take the most humble form, Lord, and to die on the cross for us. I pray that we be reminded that humility is a way to unity and to glorify in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've sectioned it out um, as follows verse 12 to 14, <coughs> Christ is proclaimed by Paul and its effect. Verse 15 to 18, Christ proclaimed by others and its effect on Paul. And then verse, 15, verse 18b to 20, how Paul can respond with joy. And verse 21 to 23, Paul's great desire. And then lastly, verse 24 to 26, what Paul chooses. So verse 12 to 14, Christ proclaimed by Paul in its effect. He begins with, I want you to know. The apostle Paul begins the main body of his letter to the saints in Philippi. These brothers and sisters have sent one of their own Epaphroditus along with some gifts. This could have been money or clothing. And perhaps they even wrote a letter themselves to Paul asking of his well-being. He's in prison, and they don't know where. We don't know where for sure. It could have been in Rome. He could have been under house arrest, guarded by soldiers. But either case, at any point in history, being in prison is never a good thing. And so Paul wants to inform them. He wants them to know something. Something, assuming they are unaware of his situation. And Paul states that though he's imprisoned, the gospel is advancing. The word "really" in verse twelve can also mean rather. So he's saying, what has happened to me has rather served to advance the gospel. The Philippians, who are partners with Paul in the gospel, are being informed that though Paul, an apostle to the Gentiles, is imprisoned, though the messenger is in chains, the gospel is still being heard by unbelievers. The gospel is not bound. So who are these unbelievers? Paul says it's the whole imperial guard. That would make up about 9,000 soldiers handpicked by Caesar. Paul also mentions all the rest in verse 13. We don't know exactly who the rest are, but we can have some pretty good guesses. At the end of our book, Paul mentions the household of Caesar. It could have been the governors, Felix and Festus, or King Agrippa, whom he testified to. Whether if they heard the gospel story or they know that Paul is in chains because of his belief in Jesus as the one true king, the gospel is advancing. And in verse 14, it says that this gospel advancement is emboldening people to also speak the gospel, to speak the word without fear. It says in the same verse that their confidence is in the Lord. They're not looking at Paul and saying, well, if he can share the gospel in prison, I can do it too. No, their confidence is in what the Lord is doing and how the Lord is using Paul in the bleakest of circumstances and have the gospel go forth in what would be an impossible situation for the gospel to advance, rather has become possible. And not just that, according to Paul here, it has been done. Their confidence is in God. And that is why the brothers and sisters can share the good news of Jesus without fear. Their faith is in a holy and powerful God. It's not in Paul. They're not trusting in their words or their tactic or their ability to debate. But in God, he can do great things in not-so-great circumstances. As I was studying this passage, I was convicted. I like to think of myself as the defender of the faith. If someone asks me about my faith, I will defend it. But I won't just put myself out there. I'm not the first person to go out and knock on a door to share the gospel. And I think that's because I'm in fear of people and not of God. I fear about what others will say of me. And if I can even share the gospel clearly, what if they ask me a hard question and I cannot answer them? Or what if I can and I do not have the courage to tell them? This fear is focused on myself and others. And as I was reading this passage, it's so easy to put people, even like the Apostle Paul, on a pedestal. But it says that these brothers and sisters became confident in the Lord. They became confident in what God can do and not themselves. This is just a reminder to take our eyes off ourselves, a reminder for me to take my eyes off myself, and trust in God and his word and what that can do and not my own. And so I just want to encourage you that if there's someone on your heart to share the gospel with, trust that the Lord can do great things. So our next section is verse 15 to 18. Christ proclaimed by others and its effect on Paul. So here in this section, we see two camps. These are not like our fun church camps, like VBS or sports camps. These are two groups of people. They have been divided. And Paul describes this division. He says that there's one good camp and one bad camp. The bad camp preaches out of envy and rivalry, as we can see in verse 15. The good preach from goodwill. The bad camp preaches for selfish ambition, which we see in verse 17. And the good do it out of love in verse 16. The bad camp preaches the gospel hoping to afflict Paul in his imprisonment, and the good camp preached because of Paul's imprisonment. So I have a chart up here on the board, but if you're in a podcast land, hopefully you can follow along. And we're not going to look too closely at each of the camps. Rather, we'll focus on Paul's takeaway in light of both of them. But a brief word about this bad camp. First, let's look at the words that Paul uses to describe them. They are envious. They're jealous. We don't know exactly of what. We can assume they don't like Paul's success in ministry, whether that's a success in sharing the gospel in prison or his success outside with church planting and converts. They preach as if it's a competition with Paul. They do it out of rivalry. Paul's in prison and they're thinking, here's a chance for me to get ahead. He also says they preach out of selfish ambition, hoping to afflict him. This just shows that this bad camp, they're thinking about themselves and how they can be seen as great and better than Paul. And then if you're like me, you have some questions. How can the gospel be preached with false motives? How can these people share the good news of Jesus out of selfish ambition? It seems counterintuitive, anti-gospel. You're saying one thing, but your actions say another. And Paul doesn't really give us the answer to this, but there are two things that we can know. First, a lot of commentators will agree that these people who are preaching the gospel are included in the same brothers and sisters referred to back in verse 14. They are part of God's family, so these aren't the same people he refers to later on in the book as dogs. Second, Paul doesn't refute the content of their gospel message like he has done in other letters, like Galatians, when he calls out people who are trying to lead the Christians away there. He says, let them be accursed, and he doesn't do that here. So it shows us that the gospel they are preaching is true, but their heart motive is way off. And so I said, we will focus on <clears throat> Paul's response. Paul is in prison. It's not a good situation. Paul is suffering, and he loses that in verse 29 to 30. People are trying to afflict Paul in his affliction, and yet Paul says he can rejoice. For Paul, whether it's in pretense, whether it's the false motives of the heart, or in truth, he can rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. Paul's greatest interest isn't how he's being treated or what justice should be done to his offenders, but that people are sharing the gospel. And it's not just that, his joy isn't wrapped up that his team of preachers is growing, but that people are hearing a life-saving message. They are hearing about the person that brings Paul great joy. People are hearing about Jesus, the one Paul loves most, as we will see soon. This bad camp thinks only of themselves. Their eyes are fixed on the horizontal. But Paul thinks of Jesus, and his eyes are fixed on the vertical. So in Paul's present state, though there are brothers and sisters who don't like him, he can still rejoice in the fact that the preaching preaching of the word is being preached. This isn't a glass-half-full statement. This isn't Paul trying to look on the bright side. This is Paul showing us his humility. Did you notice that so far he has made no mention to his well-being? I'm sure the Philippians would have wanted to know more about Paul's state in prison. Was he cold? Was he hungry? Was he sick? Has he been beaten? No, he makes no mention of it. His only concern is that they know that the gospel, whatever motive it may be, is being preached. And at the end of verse 18, we see that Paul cannot only rejoice now, but he will continue to rejoice no matter what his circumstances are. Just as Paul prayed for the Philippians, Earlier in chapter 1, that they would mature in their faith, that they would be able to discern what is right, and that they would be able to stand pure and blameless on the day of Christ. Paul relies on their prayers as well, to stand fast in the midst of his own suffering, that he would persevere and have courage till the end. He knows he needs the aid of prayer and the Holy Spirit to continue to preach the gospel without fear. With these two powerful sources, prayer and the Spirit, Paul is confident. that that he will not be ashamed. There will be no disappointment in the end. He is sure of that. Christ will be exalted through him, whether he lives or dies. He states in verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. And we can read this as my salvation. Paul has a sure hope of salvation through Jesus. His confidence isn't in an earthly deliverance, though we will read he is sure that will happen. His hope isn't wrapped up in an acquittal, His hope and joy is in the fact that whatever happens to him, if he lives or dies, Jesus will be glorified and in that he can rejoice. And then he expands on that. We get to the infamous quote by Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Many martyrs have used this quote before their own execution. I'm sure Hobby Lobby probably has this in a beautiful picture frame or in a really cool wooden plaque. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have this verse highlighted in your Bibles. It's a small but grand verse. It's this amazing statement that that gives (coughs) Paul a sense of great purpose. It motivates him in life, not just to preach and share the gospel, which is great and is being done, but it is to be completely saturated in and with Christ. Whether it's sitting in prison or free, whether it's chained to a guard or maybe chained to laundry, Paul is saying my whole life isn't even mine, but it's Christ. It is to live for Christ's glory and not my own. That's why he can have people hate him and yet still rejoice. The first half of 22 also gives light to this. It's for fruitful labor, making Jesus' name known to the ends of the earth, but also ministering to his brothers and sisters in Philippi and other churches. So if Paul's whole life is dedicated for making Christ known and for laboring alongside churches like the church in Philippi to grow in the knowledge and love for Christ, then of course death is a gain for Paul because he will be fully with Christ, the one he loves most. Then we get to verse 22 to 25. This is definitely an interesting portion of scripture, mainly because it seems like Paul is entertaining the idea of suicide. But he's not. He does not condone euthanasia or suicide or abortion or murder. This verse, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, is a bridge to the next verse. I am hard-pressed between the two. Basically, Paul is saying, if I had to choose, I don't know what I would pick. Both are so good. A life devoted to Jesus, fruitful labor, ministering alongside my brothers and sisters, so good. But I'm in prison, So if I'm sentenced to death tomorrow, and I will be with my savior, death is just so good as well. They are both so good, he's hard pressed. But he does let us in on his inner desire. If he had to pick, it would be to go with Christ. I wanna tread lightly here. In our day and age where depression and mental illness are on the rise, where death seems like the only way out, we don't wanna encourage those that death is the better route. That's not something I want to encourage, and neither does Paul. Paul says both life and death are good when it's for Christ. And so if this is something you are battling with, depression or hopelessness, hopelessness, as a church together, we can walk alongside you in that. We can pray and we can seek the scriptures together. We can point you to people who have biblical training to counsel you. Our church is a family, and we care for one another we acknowledge that our world is broken and we are in need of help. And I'm sure there are a lot of different thoughts on this, even amongst you ladies. But let me encourage you. When you are faced with death, whether that's through natural means or if it's for the defense of the gospel, we do not need to fear it. Death is a great gain when we are in Christ. The gospel that Paul so desires to have proclaimed, the message that makes dry bones come to life, He knows that death leads to eternal life with Jesus. We do not need to fear death, but we can know with great certainty that death is a gain. So Paul is doing something here when he lets the Philippians in on his thoughts. He's showing us his desire, what his greatest interest is. And if he had to choose, it would be with Christ. And then we get to verse 24. But, it's a great word in scripture. But Paul sees it more necessary for the Mm -hmm. Philippians' growth to remain alive. And so Paul is showing them and us that he's putting his own interests on the back burner and putting the interest and benefit of the the Philippians on the front. And it's so that they would grow as Christians, that they would have joy in the faith. And it's not just the interest of the Philippians that Paul is putting first, but also Jesus's. Verse 26, it is so that the Philippians can glorify Jesus. It's so that they can praise Jesus for Paul's release, for answered prayers, for Paul's fruitful labor among them, teaching and fellowshipping with him. Paul puts the interest of of the Philippians and the glory of Jesus over his. This is a great act of humility. So why is Paul writing this? Why is he writing about the advancement of the gospel in a dark place, the advancement of the gospel through people with wrong motives, or his motivations to live in the flesh? (coughs) Here's why I think he is. Near the end of the book in chapter 4, Paul addresses a disagreement between two women, Yodia and Syntyche. So this tension and disunity in the midst of the church. But he doesn't address it off the bat. In fact, he's thankful for them and the gospel work they have done so far. I think he's giving a glimpse at what humility looks like in his life first. When he gives an update on himself, it's not about him. It's about how soldiers are hearing the gospel or know that Paul is devoted to King Jesus. And when brothers and sisters are proclaiming the word to have an unnecessary competition with Paul, probably because they are jealous of him and to make much of themselves, and even with the intention to make prison worse than it already is, Paul's response is humble. He chooses to rejoice in the most important fact, and it's that Christ is being heard by unbelievers. Paul could have even called these brothers out by name, but he doesn't. He just makes the situation known to the church in Philippi but the focus is on his response, and it's a humble one. And then he wraps the whole thing up and puts a bow on it. He states his life isn't his, but it's completely devoted to Christ. It's humble. And as we just went through, he let the church know what his greatest interest is, and yet he chooses to serve the Philippians first, not just for their sake, but for the glory of God. We can see this whole section is displaying Paul's humility. He's not looking to himself, but looking out for others. And as we continue to study the book of Philippians, and as Barb mentioned in her overview of the book, humility is a key theme. We will see humility is needed to have unity. And I don't want to steal Amy's thunder, but we will see how Christ showed great humility by dying on a cross to bring us, to unite us to the Father. Paul will also show us the humility of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Humility is counting others more significant, looking to the interests of others. We can see that in chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. <clears throat> Paul doesn't just talk the talk, but he walks the walk. He's in prison, and Paul is overjoyed that God is still using him to make the gospel known. People are trying to make Paul's life worse, but Paul counts the people who are hearing the gospel more significant. Paul's greatest desire is to be with Christ, and yet he looks to the interests of the Philippians. What would be best for them? And he will continue to give examples of humility, like I said, through Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And so by the time he calls out the two women, they will know the stepping stones to reunite, how to agree in the gospel. And it will be by not looking to their own interests, but to the other, to the people in in their church, and to looking at Christ, and desiring for Christ's glory and not their own. So what can we take away from this? We could leave more motivated to live for Christ, to be bold, to share the gospel with our neighbors. And there's no doubt that when we have faith, God can do great things. But I think of what Alyssa said a couple weeks ago about gluing on fruit. It's one thing to muster up courage and boldness and to feel motivated to live for Christ after hearing a Wednesday lesson or a Sunday sermon. But if you're like me, these feelings can fizzle out. To truly live for Christ, humility is needed to know that all we have is Christ, and we can do nothing apart from him. Even in suffering, it takes a lot of humility to see what God is doing, to take our eyes off our own situation, and to see how God can get the glory. I've been encouraged by some of you and others in our church who go through different trials. I see your trust, or I hear what God has taught you, and it's encouraging to hear And it also helps me to take my eyes off my own situation and to look to God, to give things up in prayer. Remember, Paul relied on the prayers by the Philippians. Hearing of your humility humbles me to look to Christ. And when I'm looking to Christ, when we are, when we're all looking to Christ, the spirit starts to work in our church and in our hearts. It causes us to serve one another, to love one another through fruitful labor. I think of a Sunday morning and how many volunteers are downstairs and even those serving upstairs as greeters and ushers, it unites our church and makes us feel as a family. Even seeing people hanging out in the foyer and gym after church is so encouraging. It shows that we need each other to be encouraging each other. It also shows that we were just sitting under the preaching of the word, that we need to be growing around the word together. I see people praying with each other and we need each other to persevere. We need the reminder of the word to have courage and to grow. The word is what has power to change hearts, and it's the word that will enable us to put others first, to labor amongst our brothers and sisters for the glory of God. So how are we to live? It's for Christ. It's humbling ourselves and looking to Jesus as the greatest thing in life worth living for. What should motivate us day after day and what can give us long lasting purpose is seeing Christ get all the glory and all the praise. And we can truly do that by humbling ourselves and seeing our need for Christ daily. Paul's life sucked. If you look at it from the outside, he's in prison. And his own are turning against him. In a worldly sense, he doesn't deserve what he's getting. But Paul is living for Christ and not himself. So in what is a bad situation, Paul can still say, I can rejoice. Paul's life meant Christ. His greatest treasure cannot be taken away. And that's how he can still have joy. That's how he can be content in prison and thankful. For to Paul, to live is Christ. And when he died, it was a great gain. Paul's motivation was to have others know and love Jesus. Are we desiring for our brothers and sisters to grow? Are we desiring that our unbelieving neighbors will know Christ? What marks our life? Can we also say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? I can't, if I'm being honest, but I desire it. And this is why unity within the church is so needed. We needed to pray for one another that we would continue to live for Christ daily, to not get caught up or beaten down by the things of this world. It's easy to lose motivation or purpose in life when the source is temporal, when it's just for a job or kids or hobbies. But when we have an eternal purpose, when our eyes are fixed on eternal things, it motivates us for fruitful labor, for joy in the faith, for the advancement of the gospel. Let's pray. <coughs> God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that it can give us um, not only knowledge and truth, but it can cause our hearts to love your son and to love you more. I pray that our, um, our lives would be marked by Christ I pray that each day that we wake up, we would be motivated to live for Christ and that it would would spew out in all our our areas of life and that people would come to know that Jesus is the one true king. I pray that you would give us humility to see him every day in all our situations and all our circumstances and that we would give you the praise, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.